0: Right. how's everyone doing? Just so you know, I've been uh, fighting this call for the last two days, so I am completely intoxicated with medicine. So if I say something out of place, you could always blame it on the medicine, amen? For those of you that are here for the first time, welcome all to Win Bible Church. My name is Hannibal, one of the pastors here. I'm super excited because today we start this 20-week series called The Greatest Story, The Story of God and His Bride. And basically what we're doing is something that theologians call the story of redemption. In which uh, we're looking at the Bible and we're looking at the entire story of the Bible. So put it this way, the, the Bible is a collection of different historical events involving different kinds of people with different stories. But that at the end of the day, it's all one story. It's God's story. It's the story of God and his people. He's bride, His people. He's everything. It's one story. It's a fascinating story. I actually think that part of the reason why many people struggle, even reading the Bible, is because sometimes we don't see that this is the most amazing story ever told. Put it this way. 40 different people, 40 different authors wrote the Bible. Authors with different backgrounds, in different times, with different personalities, having different experiences, all under the guidance and influence of one spirit, and each of them contributing to the story of redemption. One story. 40 authors, 66 different books talking about one God, one story, the greatest story ever told. Now, like any good story, you, you need chapters. And the way theologians usually divide the Bible is into four chapters, two, four major chapters. The first chapter is the creation chapter, it's in which we see how God, uh, how God uh, created everything, and in which we see God's original design for this creation. But then you get chapter two, which you call the fall chapter, when sin enters the world and messes everything beautiful that God had created. And even though we never lose, for example, the things that God gave us, now we live in a place that is damaged and is broken, including ourselves. And then you get chapter three which we call the redemption chapter, in which the focus of that chapter is Jesus Christ, the word of God that comes to redeem and save and fix and to restore everything that sin has broken. And then we get the last chapter, the best chapter of all, which is the restoration chapter, or some people call it the future glory chapter, in which we see that at the end of this story, God always wins. And that whatever he had designed at the beginning, he completely restores at the end. Is, in my opinion, the best chapter to read. As confusing as Revelation is, how many of you guys find it confusing? Good, you're not the only one. But it's the best chapter because we get to see how the story ends. How about if I tell you that in this amazing story, there's one thing that we cannot forget. That is extremely important for us to recognize and see and acknowledge. And is that in this story, like in any good story, you always need one hero. There's always a hero. And it doesn't matter if you're in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. That hero is always Jesus Christ and what he came to do. And this is why a theologian called Brian Chappell, he will put it this way. Everything in the Bible predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the person and work of Christ. Let me say it again. Everything in the Bible either predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Meaning that it doesn't matter where you are in the Bible. There's always a connection to Jesus and his work, regardless of where you are. The greatest story ever told with the greatest Savior ever found. So for the next 20 weeks, we're going to be talking about this. And today, we're going to start with the first sermon of three sermons that we're going to spend in the first chapter, the chapter of creation. Amen? All right. So I told you that I'm in medicine. So if I fall asleep in the middle of all these things, it's because you are not contributing to the conversation. So when I say amen, the most proper response should be? Thank you. These are the two things that we're gonna talk about today. How and why everything is started. Second point, why and how we can embrace it all. How and why everything is started and why and how we can embrace it all. Do me a favor, uh, just to keep the room warm since it's like negative 55 out there. I need you to look at the person next to you and say this. We are part of the greatest story ever told. By the way, don't you love it that if you're fighting with your spouse, I, I have you speak to each other before we expose ourselves to the Word of God. you welcome, people. Let's go with point number one, how and why everything started. I want to start with this. I think that one of the reasons that keeps people from being truly amazed with the person of God from being uh, being amazed by the beauty and perfection and power and mercy and grace and sufficiency of God. I think that part of the reason why we struggle with that has to do a lot with how we view the Bible and how we view life and how we approach the Bible and how we approach life. Because I think that the tendency for many believers, probably many of the ones that are here right now or in the East worship right now, Probably the tendency for many of us is when we go go to the scripture and we do do the same thing with life, we think that the Bible and life is first and foremost about us. That, 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 That is so dangerous. When we go to the Bible and we think of life, thinking that the Bible and life is about us. Actually, I think that this is part of the reason why many people, when describe what the Bible is, they call it a handbook or a guidebook for life. Listen, I don't think that there's something intrinsically wrong with that. Because I do think that the Bible transforms you and shapes you into the person that you're supposed to be. So, for example, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness so that the people of God may be complete, complete and equipped for every good work. So, there is something about the scripture that shape us, modify us, transform us. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is about you. And that this world is about you. And that life is about you or me. Listen. To approach the Bible that way is to forget that the whole Bible is about him. And that this whole life is about him. That we happen to be part of his story. But we are not the most important person, per se, in that story. He is the focal point. He is the center. It is his story. See, to to help you understand that and how is it this dynamic works I I don't know if you have ever been in a wedding how many of you guys ever been in a wedding okay so you like to party that's good (laughs) have you ever been in a wedding in which everyone knows that the center of attention in a wedding should be the couple that is getting married amen like, no one should apologize for that. If I'm getting married, I'm paying for this thing, and I invite you, I expect you to think that I am the most important person in that wedding. Every now and then, and I've seen these, men time and time again. Every now and then, you see someone that is wearing an outfit that is so extravagant that is crying out for attention. Now, nobody says this to that person, but everyone thinks about it. That looks so desperate. You have forgotten that this wedding is not for you. It gets even worse when you see a pastor, for example, and I've seen those two, by the way, and I'm completely judgmental about this <laughs> without apologizing. I've seen pastors wearing an outfit that is so colorful that nobody notices the lady. Every time I see that, I feel like going to the pastor and say, bro, I don't think you understand your job. See, I think that when we approach the Bible that way, we're doing the same thing. We're crying out for attention, saying, look, I'm here. And the Bible and life is never, ever, ever just about us. It's first and foremost about him. And I want to hyper-focus on three things from Genesis chapter 1 that makes life and the Bible about him. It's his story and his power. It's his story and his rights. And it's his story and his purposes. And the only way we actually get to be transformed is when we embrace those three things. His story and his power, his story and his rights, and his story and his purposes. Ready? Need you to do me a favor, look at the person next to you. He says, he's gonna talk to you. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> All right, look at here. Sub-point number one of point one, the Bible and life is about him and his power. Listen, whenever you think that you are all that, whenever you think that you got it all together, whenever you are crying out because people are not giving you enough attention and they don't recognize your value and dignity, all you have to do is read Genesis chapter one and it humbles the lights out of you. Let me, let me just read it to you. Just listen. Let me just read it to you really quick to see how is it that the first chapter of the Bible is going to make it extremely clear that the Bible is about God and that everything this creation is about God. 30, let me see how many verses, 31 verses, 32 times the name of God is mentioned. Verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. Uh, Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, God called the light day. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 7, God made. uh, Verse 8, God called, God said, God called, God saw, God said, God saw, God said, God made, God said, God saw, God, 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 God. Listen. Is after you read Genesis chapter 1, it doesn't dawn on you that the Bible and this world is all about Him. There's something really wrong with you. It's almost like if Moses is going out of his way. Moses wrote Genesis to make sure that we understand. That everything that exists is because of him, that everything that exists is about him, and that everything that exists is for him. That he is at the center of the universe, and that when we struggle, that because we forget that. That only he deserves the glory, that everything is, comes from him and is for him. Listen, and it's not, there's a reason why everything is about God. And it's simply this because there's no one like him. No one like him. Not only he's eternal, nobody created him, he always existed. But everything flows from him. Isn't that how it starts in verse 1? Look at what it says. God created the heavens and the earth. What is super interesting is that in the Old Testament, in the original language, the word created, it's only applied to God. Meaning that God is the only and the ultimate creator. Because even the things that we do as human beings, when we create things, we we will call that sub-creators. We are taking the things that God already made and we turn it into something new or something different. We don't have the ability to create matter. We don't have the ability to create out of nothing. God does. The only thing we do is we grab what he has already made. And we create what he he has already made. Now, what makes God so unique and amazing is not just that he's the creator, the ultimate creator, but also how he creates. It's not just that he creates, but how he creates. Look at verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And it's almost, I want you to picture it like this it's almost like if an artist is gonna start something, and it starts with raw materials, like with all this messy stuff. And then God takes that, and in verse three says, and God said, He spoke, Let there be light, and there was light. That's <laughs> that's crazy, church. He speaks, and things happen. He doesn't work hard. He doesn't manipulate things. He's not moving things around. He speaks, and something happens. Is there any questions why anybody should think that God deserves to be in the center of everything? Actually, that verse, is, that, that, that little phrase is, is repeated again in verse 6 in verse 9 and, and 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, let the waters under the heavens. God said, let the earth sprout. God said, let there be light. God said, let the waters swarm. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. God said, let us make man, man in our image. And he happened. You know what made God? God. He speaks, and things happen. In the midst of everything, the only thing that God has to do is speak. That's it. Are you still wondering why he said that God is the center of the universe? Actually, let me, let me do a practical application here really quick. If the Bible is the word of God, and it is, amen? Every time we expose ourselves to his word, something happens. Whether you feel it or not, and whether you see it or not. Whenever he speaks, something happens. You know how much I wish I had that power. I mean, that'd be beautiful. I'll go to my daughters and say, "Clean their room," and they clean their room. I wish I could go to my dogs and say, "Stop it," and the dogs are like, "Er." But there's a reason why we say things and nothing happens because only God is God. See, the only way we get to be transformed is when we see that everything in the Bible and life is about him. That all the scriptures point to him. That this world is about him and our lives supposed to be about him. That it should be that way because he is the only one that is creator. He is the almighty, powerful God. But we need more than that. Not only we need to understand that, but we also need to understand that not only life is about him, but it's about his rights. And I know that for modern, sensitive American ears, that's offensive. Because the secular creed is that life is about me, myself, and my rights. So, if that's you, I'm about to offend you. Because I do, that, I do think that human beings have rights. But the rights that human beings have submit to the rights that God has. Now, where do I get that from? Well, look, pay attention to verse 5. And God called the light day, and darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. That little phrase, God called, also appears in verse 8 and in verse 10. It says God called the expanse of the heavens and God called the dry land. And you got to ask the question, why does that matter? When, When you look at the rest of the Old Testament, you will realize that whenever someone calls something out or put it in a different way, names something, automatically that is a sign for the person that is doing the naming to say, I have rights over you. This is part of the reason why, in the Old Testament, whenever a, a big kingdom or a great kingdom would conquer a smaller kingdom, the first thing that would happen is that the great kingdom, a big kingdom, would change their name, or rename them. Why? Do, why would they do that? So people will remember that now I have rights over you. So when God names this creation. When God calls this creation, when God gives names to everything in this creation, He is saying to this creation, I have rights over you. Now, guess what, church? You are part of that creation, I am part of that creation. He's got rights over me, my thinking, my words, my actions, my motivations, my life. He's got rights over everything in this creation. So if you are single, he's got rights and dictates how you live that singleness. If you are in a relationship... If you are dating or if you are in a situationship, which I knew where I learned a couple of months ago, he has rights and dictates what you do there. If you are married, God has the rights over your marriage. God has the rights and rules over your career, your money, your hobbies, your body, what you do in private and what you do in public. And if that is true, if God has rights over everything, including the whole word of God, we don't have permission to pick and choose what we like about him or what he says. Did you hear that? We don't get to pick and choose. What parts of the Bible, I believe those and those I don't believe. Because he's got rights over everything. All scripture is breathed out by God. Listen, since we are cel- tomorrow we're going to be celebrating Martin Luther King Day, I think it's important that we remember a little bit of history here. I don't know how many of you guys know this, but there was a Bible, quote-unquote Bible, called the Slave Bible. Did you know that? Actually, I got a copy of that Bible in my office. As a reminder... Of the dumb things we do when we forget that God has rights over everything. So this is what they did. This Bible was put together in the 1800s. And they grabbed passages of the Bible that they could use to quote-unquote justify slavery. Isn't that crazy? And left out all the other 20 million verses. That will condemn slavery. And for years and years and years, pastors used the Bible. Those are the kind of dumb things that people do when we forget that God has rights over everything. What is interesting, though, and what I've learned, is that in modern times, people would say, well, that's awful. We would never do that. Yeah, I I agree, I don't think that we were gonna do that, but we do other things that look very similar, at least in principle. See, we do the same thing when when we try to redefine redefine gender. We do the same thing when we talk about money. We do the same thing when we say this is permissible and this is not. And because this is a year of elections, we do the same thing when we talk about politics. You know how many Christians, please forgive me, that's one of you, but I'm going against you. You know how many Christians I've heard saying, if Jesus was here, he would be a Democrat? I mean, a Republican? And then the Democrat says, well, you know that he rode a donkey, right? (laughs) You know know how dumb those two arguments are? How about worship? Oh, if Jesus was here, this is the kind of worship that he would like. You know why we do that? Because we add to the scripture or subtract to the scripture. Because we forget that the scripture, God has the rights over everything that he has said. We have no permission to take the parts of the Bible we want. Either we take it all or we can take nothing. You either you embrace it all or you cannot take nothing. Because God has the rights over everything. Amen? Yes. Actually, historically, let, me, let, me give you, let me give you another historical event. I'm speaking super fast because the medicine is kicking in. <laughs> historically, the church has also been divided between, when it comes to uh, loving people, the church has been divided into two, these, these two different camps, which I'm going to call the traditional evangelistic group what uh, would well, be one group, and then the other one could be called the traditional uh, compassionate group. Meaning that one, people, one group of people think that the most important thing that we could do for humanity is to share the gospel. And we would say, amen. But then the other group would say, well, what matters most is that we, only do, that we do compassion work. And we would say, amen. And part of the reason why the group has been divided is because I don't think that we're asking the author of life, what he thinks about that? And why is it that we are creating a dichotomy when the Bible does not create a dichotomy? And I'm going to prove you that just from Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to make the argument just from Genesis chapter 1. So look at how God describes humanity in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, men in general. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And just in in case you got lost with the word man there, the text is clear. All humanity, men and women, all humanity have been created in the image of God. All. And if that is true, then all humanity, all kinds of people, different ages, different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, different races, all people carry within them the beauty of God. You know what the problem is? We don't see it. But all humanity carries that beauty. Now, if that is true, if a human being is created in the image of God and has value and dignity, what part of that human being is more important? The soul or the body? Both. Why choose? Do it all. Actually, I'm going to make the argument even more that the tendency is to hyper-focus on the soul and completely ignore the physical part of the human being. Like if for God, physical things don't matter. You want me to show it to you in the scripture? You're going to say yes. Thank you. You said it. Look at here. Verse 10. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that he was good. Physical world. Verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. And God saw that it was good. And when it comes to humanity right at the end, the last verse says, And God saw everything that he had made. And in the context, he's talking about human beings. And behold, it was very good. Notice that the first two verses is saying everything that God created in this creation any physical things that God has created in this creation, they're good. As Christians, we do hold a theology that justifies, why is it that we should care for this world? We should care for this world. Because God looks at this world and says, it is good. But notice that in the order of value, not only this creation is good, but human beings are good very good we do hold a theology that justifies why is it that evangelism matters and good deeds matters we don't get to create a dichotomy the body matters the soul matters evangelism matters compassion matters sometimes you pick one or the other first and the other but at the end of the day both matter you know how offensive and awful and horrible and anti-Christian is for a group of people to create the slave Bible? I, 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 I don't understand that yet. How can anybody just look at Genesis chapter 1? Or just by looking at Genesis chapter 1 and say, well, you know, slavery wasn't, it wasn't that bad. Really? It's a violation of the rights that God has over his creation. Even the rights I have must submit to his rights. See, we are transformed when we see That the whole Bible and life is about him. That it's about him and his power. That it's about him and his rights. And number three, that it's about him and his purposes. See, this is something that we must learn from creation. Actually, this is a lesson that creation can teach us. See, everything in creation, except humanity, is fulfilling its purpose. I heard uh, Tim Keller talking about Elizabeth Elliott, which was one of his uh, teachers. She said, "The animals glorify God more than human beings." And the question is, why? Because animals are living according to their purpose. You know what is the purpose of creation? To point to the Creator for goodness' sake. Everything in creation points to the Creator. Did you know that Genesis is a song? It's a historical song. The way it is written is like a historical poem. The creation is singing about its Creator. The creation rejoices because the, the Creator says that it is good. So we could be in any place and go outside and look at how everything is beautiful and perfect and amazing and everything points back to him. And when we look at human beings, as broken as we are, you look at any human being, any color, regardless of who they are and how they are. And if you really pay attention, you can see how that person points back to him. The beauty of the skies points back to him. A magnificent mountain points back to him. The perfection of nature points back to him. A beautiful baby with a smile points back to him. Everything that is worth living for and dying for in this place points back to him. The creation sings. So what about us? You know why we struggle? Because Genesis 3 came into the picture. And when sin entered the world, all humanity, instead of living for its design to worship God, we started to worship other things, dehumanizing us. You know why we struggle? Because we are not living according to our design. You know why you struggle in your relationship and why you struggle at work and why you struggle with your friends. You know why is it that we struggle with sin? All these things and guilt and shame is simply because of one thing. We are not living for the design God gave us. We are not living according to our design. We were supposed to live for his glory to worship him in anything we do and everything we do. And until we do that, you would always feel that you're missing something. You see how much we can learn from Genesis chapter 1. I believe that we are only transformed when we see that the whole Bible and the whole of life is about him. It's about his power. It's about his rights. And it's about his plans, his purposes. We would only find peace and rest and joy when we start living according to God's purpose for us. So the question is super quick here is, how do we change? Point number two. And when I say super quick, it's super quick. Why and how can we embrace this all? Listen, you remember how God said that creation was good? And then God saw humanity and He says He was very good. Did you know that that little phrase is it's kind of a benediction? It's almost like God saying, I really like you, and I really enjoy you. I delight in you. But since, since sin entered the world, every single one of us are craving for something or someone that would say, you are very good. We look for it in relationships and we look at it in love and we look for it in a career and we look for it in school and we look for it in looks and we look in the body. We look for something or someone that would say, You are very good. But this is what God did He saw our struggle, He saw what we're looking for and the things that we crave for. He saw how is it that in our sin, we have forgotten that by your original design, he says, you are really good, very good. I delight in you to fix that problem, which is crazy. John 1 says that the word, that in the beginning was the word, talking about Jesus. And that that word was with God. And then he tells us that Jesus is not the father, the father is not Jesus, and yet they're both God. And that the word was with the Father at the beginning of everything. The word was with God. And that everything in this creation was made through that word, through him. Meaning that Jesus was the agent of um, creation here. And he says that that word that created the world was life. And was light. That came to restore and transform everything that was broken. Broken. And it also says that that light shines in the darkness. And that darkness has not overcome it. And that is glimpses of the cross. And this is the crazy thing about Christianity. God creates you and he says, you're very good. In our sin, we take that beauty And we break it. And even though the beauty is still there, we're broken people. And the very God that created you... Now comes into the world to be broken. So he can remake you. And not only so he can remake you according to God's original design. But he makes you and gives you a position in him. So when the father of this creation, looks on you and says, in e, my son, you're very good. I delight in you. You know how crazy it is? That in all of our sin, with all of our brokenness, we have a God that in Jesus Christ could look at us and say, I delight in you. the God that is the center of the universe, the God that is all-powerful, the God that speaks and something happens, the God that has rights over everything, the God that has a purpose for everything, that God in his son looks at you and says, I delight in you. And when we find that, we stop craving for that benediction Somewhere else. Do you have that? You need that. Let's pray. My beautiful Savior, we are grateful. Not just by the way you designed us to be. Not just by the way you created us to be, by, by the way you recreated us to be in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you keep us from ever thinking, Lord, that this world is about us, that the story of redemption is about us. I pray, Lord, that we may see that even though this story is not about us, that is about you, you called us to be part of your story by grace alone. I pray, Lord, that if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we learn to see you just as you are, as the one that deserves our glory, as the one that is worth living for and dying for. And not only I pray that we learn to see you like that, but that we learn to see Jesus as the Redeemer, as the one that came to restore and fix our broken image and make us new again, And please help us see this creation the way you see it. And see other human beings the way you see them. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...